Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Well, here we are. Game 5 tonight. The Utah Jazz, the Los Angeles Clippers, 2-2. Huge game. Philly and Atlanta, 2-2. Have a huge game first. And then the Jazz game at 8. That Philly-Atlanta game tips off at 5.30. And, of course... It was 2-2 for Brooklyn and Milwaukee with Kyrie Irving out. Harden came back, but was really unable to move and largely ineffective. I just don't think you can power through a hamstring. I know there's people who want Mike Conley to power through a hamstring, and it's two weeks, so if he's healthy, he can play great. But I don't think you can just wish it and make it happen. His Harden looked awkward, didn't look like he was moving well. The first half was just really painful to watch. But... Kevin Durant was brilliant, was MVP, was awesome. I think all the people who picked the Nets or the people who gambled on the Nets to win have got to be feeling better watching Kevin Durant. 49 points, a triple-double, played every minute. Unreal. Superman. I just, I, I think that for an NBA player, 35 minutes is a full game, and 40 is an extraordinary effort. And every time I see another minute over 40, I am impressed and amazed. And 48 and to shoot it like that, and was he tired late? Is that why he missed a three that could have put it away? Although with 50 seconds left, he made a big three to put him up four, uh, and then the Bucks got it to two, and he couldn't make the big three to put him up five. Um, but man, of all the ways to lose, Middleton drives, draws the defense, feeds it to Tacumbo, who fumbles it, and it rolls through his legs, and Durant picks it up. Not the way to lose a game. That's a, uh, that's a high school junior jazz type play to make at that point. Is catch it and go up and dunk it, and he couldn't do it. And that is brutal. That is just a painful, painful way to lose. And, you know, you can go with whatever word you want. He folded, he choked, he gagged. It's like, that's a simple play. Milton made the tough part of the play. He broke the paint. He got into the heart of the lane, and then not to come had the ball roll between his legs. So now Milwaukee's got to go home. All you can do is uh, win Game 6, force Game 7. If you win that, then Game 5 just becomes a footnote. It's like uh, Donovan missing Game 1. I mean, we can talk about it. and You know, it's interesting if you're into the jazz and diving deep into the minutia. Basically, it's just a footnote. You know, yeah, he didn't play. They lost the first game. Rudy fouled out. Whatever they won in 5, it didn't matter. They had time off before Round 2. So what? Footnote. And the only way for Francis Kempo to make that a footnote is to win the next two games. Otherwise, it's kind of a legacy moment. You know, in the biggest moment, you came up empty. Brutal. Painful. And yet, there it is. So now for the Jazz, what happens tonight? Do they come out with more confidence? Are they more aggressive? Um, do they really attack the Clippers, put them on their heels? Is there an early flurry that has the Clippers reeling, has the Clippers questioning themselves? Uh, I really think that's what the Jazz need. Um, yeah, it just it went so poorly in the two games in LA, and they just weren't very competitive. And so, get your feet under you early and get after them early. That's in. It'll be a long game. They'll be back and forth. Both teams will make runs. It's just a little easier to play when you're in front. You know, you throw the first punch. I think it it gives you confidence. Now, of course, the Clippers. They got playoff veterans. You know, they got guys. They got guys who've been deep in the playoffs. Guys in their thirties, and they know we're probably going to take a punch early. Weather a storm is a great. Great postseason cliche, but that's what they have to do. And then we'll see if they hang in there. Huge game. Game five tonight. If the Jazz take down the Clippers, uh, 3-2, back on top of the world, go to L.A. with a chance to close it out, knowing you still have game seven at home also. For the Clippers, well, they were 3-2 against Dallas, I guess. They just figured, well, just going to have to play it out like we did last time. Um, 
Huge game, though. Huge game tonight. Uh, we're going to hear from Quinn Snyder coming up. We're going to hear from Joe Ingles coming up as they spoke on the off day yesterday afternoon. We'll have that for you. Uh, but coming up next, a little U.S. Open golf, and we'll do that with Brian Taylor next. Stay with us. Fires an off-balance three. He hit it. He hit it. We ready for war. Never back down. Give me some more. Joe Ingles. We came for the title. Killing the game. Dead on the rise. The series is all tied up at two. Oh, God. Our Utah Jazz are back at home to host the Clippers in Game 5 tonight. The Jazz Live pregame show kicks off at 7 with tip-off at 8 on your home for Utah Jazz basketball. Rise, fire, splash. 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Brian Taylor joined us late in yesterday's show with the U.S. Open Golf Preview. One thing changed yesterday when the tournament's starting tomorrow. Um... DeChambeau and Kepka are not going to be paired together. Brian was uh, thinking, well, you know, maybe that could happen. You know, it's open wanted it to happen, but uh, a little pushback there. Uh, you know, it, it's already a zoo. Do the players really want more of a zoo? DeChambeau says he welcomes it. Uh, maybe you have to say that. Easier for Kepka to shoot it down than DeChambeau, I guess. DeChambeau doesn't want a weakness. They're coming after me and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I got to think both players are like, I mean, they could get paired together on the weekend just based on their score. So do you need the circus early in the week? All right. Here's Brian Taylor with PK and I. DJ PK, it's time for you in a golf U.S. Open preview with Real Golf Radio's Brian Taylor. And it's brought to you by Mountainland Supply, Zions Bank, Black Desert Resort, and Get Some Guns and Ammo. Brian, good morning. Did you not hear my good morning? We did no. not. We were cheated out of your good morning. Yeah. Let me try again. Good morning. Now I feel better. All right. <laughs> Happy to be there for you, PK. Thank you. We are jealous. We are jealous of you and Bob running down to Torrey Pines and playing the U.S. Open course before the U.S. Open. I guess the one thing we don't know, since it's a public course and lots of people get to play it, is how much was it in open-ish shape when you played it? How much could you see what the guys are going to be up against? Well, we've been there twice uh, during the U.S. Open, 2008 and again a couple weeks ago. And I, I would say in both instances, uh, the, you know, it was about three weeks out. Golf course was getting there. Uh, certainly different than when we have visited there during the farmers in January, early February. Um, rough is definitely up. Fairways are tighter. Uh, greens and uh, complexes are firmer. I, I, it was really notable how how firm uh, the golf course was already just a few weeks ago. And Phil Mickelson said Monday in his press conference that, you know, even in two days uh, that he'd been working out there, it had firmed up significantly. So um, it's it's going to be different. Um, you know, I think Phil described it best. You know, you, you, you've got firmer fairways that aren't going to hold. You know, and during the farmers, it's, it's softer, so you can just kind of drive it down the middle. Now you've got to shape it into fairways so that it, it actually stays there. So, as you know, it's a huge advantage to hit fairways in the U.S. Open. It's not the only thing. Bryson proved that last year at Wingfoot, but uh, it certainly is an advantage. And then just trying to, trying to keep it in, in position, you know, on the green to be able to make some putts. So, it was fun. I, I, I think I've mentioned this before. When you play Torrey Pine South at any time, it's an experience, quote-unquote. Uh, it's not exactly a fun day of golf. It's hard. It's a very, very difficult golf course. So these guys have played all over the world and played all these courses many times over. They've played them when they are either for fun or a regular tournament, and then sometimes these places host the 
tournament, the U.S. Open, so they know that there's going to be changes versus when they played it before, or in this case, you know, when it's a regular tour, all that stuff. How much difference does it make in their game from compared to when they played it the other times, whenever that may be, versus when the particular course is the U.S. Open course? Yeah, I think it varies venue to venue, uh, really. There are some venues that play drastically different uh, when the USGA gets a hold of them. And there's other golf courses that are made for U.S. Open setups, just the way the USGA likes them. And as the caddy says, Torrey Pines is one of those golf courses where you just got to grow the rough up a little bit and switch the flags from Torrey flags to USGA flags. And um, so I, I think Wingfoot was that way last year a little bit, you know, um, there are other golf courses where they, I don't want to say trick it up, but they really narrow the fire. Pebble Beach is a great example. Pebble is vastly different uh, with, from what the guys play in, at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am versus when they play U.S. Open. The rough is, is, is grown in. The fairways are narrowed significantly. It's not a wide-open, linksy-style golf course that they normally see at, at, the, at the regular Pebble Beach stop. So uh, I think it varies venue to venue. And, uh, I mean, this is an interesting one. I've only seen the one U.S. Open there in 2008, and Tiger Woods won. And I think that was, like, what, the eighth or ninth time that Tiger Woods has won at Torrey Pines. And so I, I, I have to think that maybe Torrey's one of those where you look at past success, where, you know, it does play a lot more similar to when they re- normally play there. And, and so you can use a little bit of the – you know, history of the players at the Farmers to determine maybe who might fare well at the U.S. Open on that particular venue. So uh, as I've been looking at it, that that's sort of seems to be the thing that lines up a little bit with Tory. Now, usually you come on and second-guess our draft picks. The draft is tomorrow. We have you on the day before, so why don't you give us some hot tips so that PK and I have an edge over Bob because nobody wants Bob to win. We don't want him to win. You don't want to listen to him. I mean, that's the one thing the three of us have in common. Nobody wants to listen to Bob after he wins. Well, the, the, the odds-on betting favorite is John Rahm. He's an interesting one, right? I mean, he got his first win at Torrey Pines. He was a six-shot runaway uh, with fifty with uh, 18 holes to play at the Memorial, and then he got sidelined with COVID. So he's been in quarantine. I, I feel like you know he's probably sitting there with un, some unfinished business. Uh, he's he's good friends with Phil Mickelson. Uh, his brother Tim Mickelson was was John uh, was was Rahm's first agent, and so I, I think there's probably a lot of uh, going on there. I think there's he's. Of all the top players, he probably has the fewest question marks about his game. He just, but you know, he hasn't won a major yet, so he's looking for his first major championship win. That certainly is the next step for a guy like John Rahm if he can control his demeanor. That's always been some of the challenges. Is he's had a tendency to blow up and not be able to withstand the mental challenge. But John Rahm is is one. I, and Brooks Koepka is hard to overlook. I mean, he didn't play last year at Wingfoot, but he's so you take that one out. In the last three U.S. Opens he's played, he's gone win win runner up. Um, in fact, since 2014, he's 17 under par in the U.S. Open. That's 10 strokes better than his closest competitor, which is Xander Schauffele, which, by the way, I think Xander is also a, a great pick this week. Another San Diegan who's one of the best players in the world. He's had good success at Torrey Pines and is just, you know, is, is probably one of those right along with Phil as their backdoor, backyard kind of favorites for this week. One interesting about Kepka, he hasn't broken par in his last seven rounds at Torrey Pines, so that's a little bit unique. And, and I think I mentioned Phil Mickelson. I think he's one you have to look at. I, listening to his comments, he's in a different space right now. He's totally healthy. And you think about this when we're watching NBA playoffs and you think about the experience that, that players have. They've been there before, and that's usually an advantage. And yet you look at a 50-year-old, 
And that's a detriment in golf because no one's ever done it. Well, now Phil's done it. And, you know, Phil is a guy that, I mean, he's never lacked for confidence, but the guy is over brimming with confidence right now. And he's putting in the extra work physically, mentally, and, and, and from a golf standpoint. And, and I think he's probably one you got to look at. So um, Dustin Johnson's number one in the world. He, he's missed the cut in back-to-back majors, but he's also tied for six or better in five of his last U.S. Opens. So, I've ripped off some names for you there. John Ron Brooks, Kepka, Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Xander Shoffley. I mean, I like all those guys. Um, I think we have to go to a I – know, I know, by the way, Bob's going to pick Jordan Spieth. So, if you want to let him have that one, he has eight top tens in his last 11 starts, but he's only had one win. And I think his best finish since winning the U.S. Open in 2015 is tied for 35th. So, not necessarily – he missed the cut this year at the Farmer. So, uh, maybe you let – Go ahead and let Bob have that Jordan Spieth pick and, and uh, go with one of those other guys. But um, Tony Fina, our hometown guy, is another one. We can get into him if you want. But I, I think he's one that would be a good pick this week. So obviously, Phil, he tends to be a favorite wherever he is, but particularly in the desert and then over there, the two places where he's has a ton of following. And I don't know if it matters, but it'll be fun to see if he can – maintain what he did in the U.S. or in the PGA, I should say, would be the ultimate golf story. With that in mind, and this is California, so I'm not sure what the rules are. What are we expecting crowd-wise? Yeah, they're going to have limited crowds, unfortunately. Um, as you said, it is California. Uh, they limited the media. Uh, we thought maybe we would get a chance to get out there this week, and, and uh, they basically are, are keeping it to the same crowd that was there at, uh, at Wingfoot you know, in September. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a little quiet. I do think Phil will be a huge favorite, you know, from a crowd standpoint for those that are there. When we were there, they were putting the grandstands up, and they were, they were tiny compared to what we saw there in 08. So uh, it, it'll be a little quieter, but it's not going to be dead quiet. Uh, I think you'll have enough fans to, to make some noise, and, and I think they'll be excited to see how Phil does. So where, what is a winning score going to look like here? How tough is the course going to be? Is this a U.S. Open where you just, uh, if you break par, you celebrate wildly? I think so. You know, looking back at, at Tiger's win, you know, he doubled the first hole, I think, three times that week, shot three over the final round, and, and had to birdie the 18th to get into a playoff. We all remember that putt. Pretty remarkable. Um, it's, I think, both, the, both uh, um, Tiger and uh, Rocco were one under par. Uh, at the end of the week. so And each of them in that final round, each made three birdies apiece. So it's going to be one of those. I don't think you're going to see a birdie fest. I really think it's one of those hang on. Um, Phil talked about it in this press conference that he, he watched Tiger pick his spots of where he could you know be a little bit aggressive on some putts. But for the most part, it is. I think it's going to be one of those that's going to hover right around, you know, I mean, maybe one or two, three or four under par at the most. Um, if, you can, if you can shoot one under every day at Torrey Pines, for four days, I, I would think you've got a great shot of winning. So a few years back, it was fun to follow the likes of Thomas Spieth, McElroy, uh, Fowler, young guys on the come. And they've sort of, uh, at this point, they're not old by any stretch, but they're beyond like the young guys on the tour. And I think they've been replaced by a guy named Colin Morikawa. I point to him being this is his 50th start. And he's had some, uh, what's he have, four wins, and obviously he's got a major. Uh, do you think that he could be viewed as a threat to really make a huge step this very weekend and put his name out there that I'm a guy to be reckoned with going forward for the next 10, 15 years? 
Oh, 100%. Um, you know, he won the last major on the West Coast, uh, yeah. which was up up the coast there at Harding Park in San Francisco. Right. You know, that that was an interesting one, PK. You look you look at guys and, and sort of what's inside of them. If you remember that one, it was there were no fans. It was no. dead quiet, which right. is unfortunate. But yep. but you remember that Sunday, there were all the best players. Brooks was there, Bryson was there, DJ was there, Tony was there, and all the guys were right there. And it felt like nobody on Sunday wanted to take it. And Colin Morikawa stepped up and drove the green on what was it, sixteen? Yep. And made the Eagle putt and and just took the golf tournament. And he won the WGC earlier this year at Concession, which is a very difficult golf course. I think when you look at golf swings and, and the proverbial ball striker, you know, title, Colin Morikawa was that guy. And, you know, he's his putter has been a little bit suspect. He's 161st on tour in putting. That's my only sort of asterisk, if you will. But in spite of that, he is definitely one of the best players uh, out there on the PGA Tour. And I think he's absolutely one that you got to reckon with. And, and you're right. He's part of that new younger crowd that's sort of uh, replacing the young guns that you previously mentioned that, have, that are now sort of the, the veterans out there. Is the media overblowing the whole uh, DeChambeau hate fest, or is that the real deal? You know, it's really hard to figure out what those two are doing. Um, it's kind of a fine line. Uh, I, I look at that situation and – and there's a lot of ways I just chuckle at it. I mean, you know, they're, they're going back and forth at each other, you know, on social media. And, you know, it's causing, you know, uh, commentary around golf and, and getting people to say, hey, what's going on here? It's, it's interesting. It's noteworthy, which golf a lot of the times isn't. And at the same time, at the root of it, you have one of today's best stars buying beer for fans that are heckling one of his rivals. And I, I, I can't help but think there's probably something a little wrong with that, right? I mean, that, that's one of those things that, you know, when the cat's out of the bag, that's going to be tough to put it, put it back in, right? I mean, it, that could get out of control. We, the mashed potatoes, the get in the hole, the you're the man screams after every tee shot, they got old really fast. And now if you're going to basically, hey, if I go do something crazy for one of my guys against one of his rivals, I might get a mention on social media and a nod from one of his sponsors. Um, yeah, I mean, th- that changes things dramatically. I- I'm not sure that's the direction we want to go in the game of golf. But um, anyway, th- th- that's my-, my commentary on that. As far as whether there's a real you know, sort of hatred or a, an actual rivalry between these two. I don't know. I mean, Brooks comes across as a bit of a, you know, the, the little that I've been around him in the comments is he's kind of just a keep to himself. I don't really make too much big. I don't make a big deal about this whole game of golf. It's what I do for a living. Otherwise I'm just my own dude and I don't get too wrapped up in it. And that guy, he's way too wrapped up in it. And that bugs me. I mean, that, that to me, that seems like that's sort of the root of, of, of everything that's going on there. Um, but, you know, sure, is the media overblown? Of course. Everything gets overblown these days. I don't think anything is understated. If there's a little spark, <laughs> let's gaslight that thing and blow the whole thing up. So, yeah, that, I, I think that's what's going on. But we'll, we'll see pairings come out today. And there is a traditional USGA pairing that puts the reigning U.S. Open champ, the reigning U.S. Amateur champ, and a past U.S. Open winner. Well, the reigning U.S. Open champ is Bryson. And the past two U.S. Open champions previous – is Brooks Kepka. So does the USGA, are they going to pile on? Do they want the ratings? Yeah, probably. I mean, look for that pairing to come out later on today. It'll be something to talk about for sure. 
So I want to go to bed on Sunday, happy man. And in order for that to happen, I need Phil Mickelson to win the U.S. Open, and I need the Jazz to win Game 7. Mm. It's going to happen on both accounts, isn't it? Wow. Um, <laughs> going, to, going to major lengths to avoid the word no. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Brian Taylor. Those would be two count, great stories. Count me in as a bit of a disheartened jazz fan last night. So um, uh, that, was, that was not fun to watch. Um, it was tough to watch, I should say. Kyle, I, I, I sure like to think that the number one overall seed in the NBA regular season has a better chance of of moving on, you know, to the finals, uh, Western Conference finals, than Phil Mickelson does to repeat as back-to-back oldest major champion winner ever, right? And to get over the six times a runner-up, never quite could win the U.S. Open. I, I mean, I would have to think that Phil story would, would be way bigger than the Jazz, you know, getting past the Clippers this week. I, I, to me, the Jazz should get past the Clippers. Phil Mickelson shouldn't be winning majors at 50. He did it. I think he still has a good chance. He's someone we definitely got to watch, and um, I think he's playing as, maybe as well as he has his entire career. But, uh, yeah, I, I, boy, I hate to PK, man. Sheesh. Uh, <laughs> don't do that to me. Well, How about Tony Finau in the Jazz winning? Now, maybe we go – Go know, complete local? Yeah, go complete local. And actually, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, he's – I mean, real quick, just his stats. He's, you know, at the Farmers – He's coming up off a T2 this year, and he has uh, top six in four of his last five years playing at Torrey Pines. In his, he's, he's played in 20 majors now. He has 10 top 10s, including nine of his last 13. He's has two top 10s in five U.S. Open appearances. So, I, I you know, why not, Tony, this why week? Not? That's what I say. We've been why saying not? it for weeks, months, years. <laughs> so uh, I follow you, and I think that uh, it's going to happen at some point. I don't know which tournament, but I, I think uh, – just odds-wise and game-wise. And the thing about Phil, when he tees it up, he will be 51. That's true. Yeah. That's true. His birthday's So why June not 16th. get one at 50 and 51? Yeah. And then get the Masters uh, next spring. Wasn't yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll be all about that. 51 50. Wasn't that a Van Halen album, too? Mm, so, yeah, yeah. See what you just did there? Yeah. So I know there's nothing that would compare to Phil doing it. He's literally the oldest. If he does it again, obviously nobody's done it. Is the closest thing when Mark O'Meara over 40 won two really quickly? Uh, that's a pretty that's a good comparison. Um, I don't think Mark had won any majors at that point in time, though. Um, and he wins back to back at forty two or whatever, forty maybe it's forty on the dot. Um, yeah, I'm starting to th- I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, Darren Clark, uh, he won one late. Um, right? Didn't Darren Clark win one late? Wait, now maybe I'm forgetting. Maybe I'm mistaken. No, I think he, yeah, he got the Claret Jug. So um, Ernie Els. I think Ernie Els had a little bit of a run late in his career. So yeah, I, I, but maybe that mirror. That's probably a good. Probably a good comparison. All right. All right. Well, the draft with Bob. We've got your tips now. So thanks for that going forward, and uh, we'll see how this works out. You know what, PK? Because what? this fits you. You need to pick Patrick Reed because nobody else wants to pick him. <laughs> but you're you're surly enough to pick him. Pick Patrick Reed. He won at the Farmers this year, and he's 17th uh, around the greens and fourth in putting. I mean, nobody likes him, but he's probably he's going to be in contention. I, I would say he's going to be in contention. What do you mean I'm surly enough? How does that make me feel? 
Surely. Yeah, you want to probably feel just a happy, low, go lucky, lovable dude that I am. I wonder if Reed Jeez, is. I wonder yuck. if Reed is jealous of DeChambeau getting all this run as uh, you know unlikable. Nasty. Like, hey, I'm Patrick Reed. I'm nasty and unlikable. <laughs> Get off my lawn. I'm a golfer. This is all my lawn. That's the best Surely. comment of the morning, right there. Holy Love cow! It. Thank you, Brian. See you, boys. There's BT Brian Taylor. You hear him on uh, Real Golf Radio Saturday morning, six to nine a.m. with Bob Casper, right here on the Zone Sports Network. When we come back, Quinn Snyder. Joe Ingles talking about the big game five tonight. Stay with us. Fires it off balance. Three hit it. He hit it. He hit it. We ready for war. Never back down. Give me some more. Joe Ingles. We came for the title. Killing the game. Get on the ride. This series is all tied up in two. Oh, God. Mitchell. Our Utah Jazz are back at home to host the Clippers in game five tonight. The Jazz Live pregame show kicks off at 7 with tip-off at 8 on your home for Utah Jazz basketball. Rise, fire, splash. 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. The Utah Jazz play tonight, 8 o'clock, at home against the Clippers. The series is tied 2-2. Quinn Snyder meeting with the media in advance of Game 5. Here's the coach. Quinn, I was just talking to Joe about Donovan, and I'd asked him, you know, as an observer of just the game, is it what's it like to see a player who's able to been, do, been able to do what Donovan has done in four years and even – sort of in a more narrow scope, what he's been able to do in these playoffs, considering the pain that he's playing through right now. And Joe had said, you know, it's a very select special few players who can make the leaps that he's made and do what he's doing on the court right now. In in your experience, what is it that I guess distinguishes a player like Donovan from the others that lets him, that's able to make him that kind of player that can make those kinds of leaps and bounds and play through pain and still elevate his game. Meanwhile. Well, I, I think, you know, to your point about, you know, even now he's, he's playing through, you know, he's playing through pain and he's, so he's, I think that shows his mental toughness. Um, I think it shows his competitiveness. I think those are two of the things that, that have allowed him to, to improve the way he has and to, you know, to become the player he has. The, the other thing is his work ethic. Um, you know, that he, he's one of those guys that, that, you know, loves to work on his game and he's been, you know, really coachable and tactical um, about how he approaches his work. I think, you know, whether it's, you know, his willingness to listen to whether it's a coach or a teammate, um, in addition to him studying the game, you know, he's just always looking for ways to get better. And I think that's demonstrative of a hunger that he has, you know, to be great. Um, so the combination of those things, um, that, that the results are, are what you're seeing. Becca Harlow, TNT. Hey, Coach, you know, over the last couple of games, you've had stretches where your offense has been stagnant here. And after going through the film, in those stretches where you've got Donovan, who's got things going on, but the rest of your starters um, haven't been able to put up the numbers that they usually do, what do you need to see from the rest of the guys heading into game five? Well, I think, you know, it starts – 
with our ability, you know, to, to play in a way that, that connects us. And, and some of that is, is certain concepts that, um, that we've had success with throughout the course of the year, you know, we need to continue to try to do. And then in other situations, um, you know, we need to adjust to their personnel and some of the things they're doing, um, whether that means, um, if they're trapping Donovan, you know, getting the ball out of the trap quicker, um, guys that receive the ball being more prepared to either shoot or make a play. Um, I, I think there, there's, there's actions and plays and certain things that, um, you know, you want to focus on that, that are more efficient. And I think as you, um, unfortunately, as when you have a 13 point quarter, you have a, you know, the taste in your mouth of a 13 point quarter, but you also have an opportunity to look at it and to address it and to understand, you know, why those, those things happen. There, there's times when, you know, you're playing good offense and you're just missing shots and to differentiate those things, um, I, I think is important. So we, we, you know, we know our identity, um, and we have to continue to, you know, to play to that. Um, but we also understand, I think that the playoffs are about, um, adjusting and not just the adjusting just dur during from game to game, but also on a larger scale, um, to a team that you're playing and their personnel, their length, um, their ability to cover space, many of the things that they do really well. Um, there's ways that we have to attack them that are different than, than we've had to attack certain teams um, or, or different than we, we've had to even attack them, say, during the regular season or the first two games. So um, that's really, I think, more the process than anything. And, I, you know, I think that that will lead um, to other guys having opportunities to, 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 to be more productive. You know, the, those opportunities um, have to be created as well. And we can create them, you know, a number of ways and for us to be focused on it and to really know when, when they're there too. So that we take advantage of them and we can't be surprised if there's a situation where you end up with a shot, you might be, might not be as open as you'd like to be, um, you know, but if you don't take a shot or you don't drive the ball quickly, you know, you get up against the shot clock and that's, that's something that's, that's happened to us at, you know, too much as well. So I think anytime there's a, there's a load like that where you're, you're struggling, you know, you look at it and it's usually um, the combination of a lot of things that everybody needs to do a little bit better. And in addition to finding situations that um, can provide you with, you know, a greater probability of, of success. Eric Walden, Salt Lake Tribune. When along those lines, when we were talking to Joe a minute ago, he had mentioned how in his view, once the second half came around, guys were started, guys were able to start breaking the paint a little more, start able, able to start getting the blender going a little more. Um, I guess just can you speak to kind of what some of the adjustments were that made that, you know, a little more workable than it was earlier in the game? Well, I think I think there was a couple things, you know, I think our mindset changed. Um, you know, sometimes you realize the, the, the urgency and the precision that you need to play with 
um, when the alternative, you know, doesn't give you the results that you want. Um, and that's true, you know, of any adjustment that you make, you know, it, it becomes very clear, you know, certain things that you, you can or cannot do, um, against certain opponents. So without getting, you know, too deep into, you know, those things that, that we've talked about and, and again, met about today that we think we can do to help us, um, suffice to say, as I said before, that's, um, that's what the playoffs are about. And you try to figure things out and, you know, the other team adjusts and you adjust on that. And, you know, pretty soon you get to a point where, you know, people, you know, have an idea of what one another are doing. And then it comes down to, you know, competitiveness and, and, you know, kind of, you know, force and execution and, you know, not allowing someone to take you out of something that if, if it's something that, you know, you need to do to be successful. Ben Anderson, KSLsports.com. Quinn, somewhat along those lines, is there a limbo of making adjustments and trying things that are significantly different? And does that change based on kind of the series score? If it's you're up 2-0 versus even when you're saying, you know, when you adju- we just need to execute better or you need to make kind of significant adjustments? There's a continuum, you know, I think, you know, for us, sometimes when you have success, um, you know, it's not just human nature, but it's rational, um, you know, to do what you do if it's, it's, if it's successful. So, you know, we, we, we won four straight coming into the series. We won the first two games in the series. The, the Clippers really raised their level. Um, they did a few things differently, um, you know, and, and, you know, you respond to that. I thought you saw some of that in the second half, but some of it too is a balance between you, you don't abandon. There's a reason you have an identity as a team. Um, there's a reason for us, you know, the, the regular season that we, you know, we played the way we did and, you know, you, you can't completely be taken out of who you are um, because that's where your instincts are. That's where your identity lies. But at the same time, you know, there are things that, that you need to do differently, particularly against um, an opponent when you're, you're playing them multiple times and an opponent really of their caliber, um, you know, that they, they play a certain way. Um, and, you know, we, we have certain personnel and, you know, that, that's one of the things that, you know, that you want to try to do, you, you want to try to put your guys in positions to be as successful as, as they can be. And, um, that, that's really the way in, in my mind that you approach it, whether it's on the defensive end or, or the offensive end, you know, some of the things we were doing in game one, you know, over time become less effective. Um, you know, and then there's some things that maybe they're less effective, but you just need to do them better. Um, or, or adjust a little bit or adjust to read or anticipate something or know how you're being guarded um, where it's recognition either from a personnel standpoint um, or, or a situation, something that works well, you know, after a miss where you're running um, may be different than something that you're doing on a dead ball situation. And so it all, it also involves, involves lineups. 
um, lineups and matchups where there's situations where certain players are going to be able to have success attacking um, one guy and not another, you know, and that, that's really true um, all the time, but it, it just becomes more focal um, when, when you're playing a team in the playoffs. There is Quinn Snyder with the media. Now here is Joe Ingles. So Joe, we spoke to a few of the guys last night who, who really came away from the game, you know, disappointed by the overall result, but feeling good about how you guys managed to turn things around in the second half. Uh, what really changed from the first half to the second that kind of made that possible? What, what do you look at going forward that you guys need to do differently? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first, second half were kind of a contrast of each other. I think we were, I think we just got a bit stagnant in that, that first half, first kind of quarter. Um, I don't think we played necessarily like on the back foot, but we, we got a bit stagnant. They loaded up the floor with, with obviously their, whatever they're like six, nine across the board kind of thing um, with that starting unit. Um, and then, yeah, I think in the second half, we, we played the way kind of we expect to play. Um, breaking the paint, making plays on the defensive end. Um, I think in the first half they had, someone said they had 12 or 13 like second chance points. Um, we had like five or six turnovers. Um, <clears throat> obviously stuff we expect um, not to do, but obviously at times as well, we, we like um, said it a million times, we obviously have some turnovers because we are unselfish and we move the ball. Um, but the second chance points, I think I think it was off like four or five offensive rebounds um, and, and kick out threes or whatever. Um, but I think in the second half, we played, like I said, played the way I guess we expected to play and, and expect ourselves to play every game. So um, we got the stops. We were out running, um, getting shots in transition, getting on the rim in transition, making plays for each other, kind of breaking the paint and, and starting that blender and, and, and having them in, in the rotation. So, um yeah, it's good to, to watch it, I guess, and then and see kind of, how, I guess, how big a difference it was. Um, and it's obviously clear um, it's for us, it's the, the, the way we need to play. Rebecca Harlow, TNT. Hey, Joe. Yeah, just curious about, you know, the, the, the urgency, because it kind of shifts now. Ever since game one, you guys have been in control, but now things are back to even. How does that shift kind of the urgency knowing that tomorrow is a really big game for you guys? And for you personally, you know, do you like that sort of feeling when, you know, there, there's more pressure than ever in a series? Like, do you respond well to that? I guess we'll find out in uh, 24 hours. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, the urgency I mean, as a professional athlete and someone that wants to win every game as a, as a team, not just me individually, it's um, something you expect every game, regardless if it's game 25 of the regular season, 72 or, or the playoffs. Um, there's obviously some games that um, we don't come out the right way and, and given different circumstances, but especially in the playoffs, like you, in the playoffs, um, I mean, being up 2-0, being up 2-1, whatever the situation is now, 2-2, um, the urgency should be the same regardless. We, we've we been in the situation, which I talked about the other day, of, of being up 3-1 and, and not necessarily probably not having the urgency, but maybe not at the right level that we, we needed to have it. Um, 
and we, we don't want to get back there. <laughs> it's a, um, it's a, it's a miserable time when you're sitting at home and you, you know, you've had, had that lead. So, um, yeah, I mean, tomorrow's a, a big game as they all have been, obviously with the, the scores two, two now it's, um, it's kind of a, a three game series and, and we played all regular season to have the home court advantage to be, to be able to represent our, our fans and our organization at home. And we've got that opportunity. So, um, I'm confident with our group of guys that we'll be ready to go tomorrow. Um, we, we've watched film. We've, we've seen, like I was saying on the last question, kind of what we need to do and the, the way that we feel like is a good way for us to play. And it's shown success in, in this series as well. Um, so it'll be, it'll be fun. Um, I would kind of embrace the, the moment as the guy, like there's any, I think you've got to enjoy it. It's not about, not taking it serious, but having fun out there, enjoying it. What we've done all year, we've we've enjoyed these challenges, whether it be, like I said, game one or game 72, um, being locked in and, and focused on what we need to do, but, but enjoying it and enjoying having 18,000 fans coming to watch us and, and do what we do. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I'm confident our guys will, will be ready to go and, and locked in and, um, yeah, it'll be exciting. And last one for you, Joe, but, you know, with PG and Kawhi, 65 points ago, 62 last night. Um, obviously, they're terrific players. You guys are also a terrific defensive team. Walk me through, after going through film, kind of how do you pay attention to both of those guys at the same time? And do you feel like there's anything specifically that you guys have unlocked now that you can tweak heading into this game tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, the, obviously, the, in a series, there's kind of constant adjustments. It's a chess game of, of they started big the second game, they went back small, they blitzed Donovan, they didn't like the, every game. There's kind of something different. They played zone one game for a little bit. Um, we came played zone for a little bit. It, it changes all the time. And um, I think in the first couple of games, we did a really good job on those guys, making it tough. Obviously they, they have the ball and have the, the, the shots, whatever you want to call it, the, the usage percentage and stuff like that. They're going to have the ball in positions. And um, I mean, they move Kawhi's ISO from posting him up to the, to the block or to the elbow. Um, so they, they're, they're going to keep making adjustments. Obviously we've seen that. Um, and obviously he um, was pretty successful, sex successful in that situation. Um PG more off pick and roll, um, kind of getting his his off that way. So um, yeah, we've we've obviously watched it. There'll, there'll be things we'll do differently. There'll be things we do the same. There's things that work and, and that you change every game. There's things you take as well that have, have been good. Um, kind of like I was saying with with the second half offensively. There's things we did in the second half which we've done all series that uh, have been really successful for us. So. Um, yeah, again, we'll, we watch the film. Um, we'll watch again uh, a bit more tomorrow morning and then make some adjustments on the court and, um, yeah, come out with a, a good attitude, ready to go, focus. And, um, yeah, like I said, we'll be, we'll be ready to go. All right, we have time for one last question. Sarah Todd, Deseret News. Joe, when I ask this question, I realize that the inclination is going to be to talk about Donovan in the way that you know him personally, like you know that he's a hard worker and stuff. But I, I kind of want you to maybe just look at, as a, at it as like an observer of basketball, what he's been able to do in just four years. And also like extending that, what he's able to do in these playoff series while he's been injured. Yeah, I mean, I, thought, I mean, if I was a 
fan of the Jazz, I'd be pretty happy with the draft pick they made. <laughs> I'd give a thumbs up to the guys upstairs. Um, I mean, it's. I guess it's hard to comment as like a as an observer or because I am. I'm obviously lucky enough to be around him every day. Um, it's very different to sitting in the, the crowd and seeing him twice a week or once a year, depending on where we play, if you're in New York or wherever kind of the, the fans are based. But um, yeah, like I said, I think it's um, if I was sitting in a, a chair four, four years ago when he got drafted and um seeing his progression from that, I think it's very obvious where he's come and where he's still going. It's not, it's not like he's like flatline now and that that's kind of, is who he is. Um, I think every year they, they would know, obviously we notice it, but they fans, the general public would notice that his, um, his level just kind of keeps some, some days it kind of a bit more skyrocket. Some days it's, a little flatter, but it's constantly rising. Um, not just with awards that he wins or dunk contests or like whatever it is, all-star. Um, like for me, and obviously again, like it's hard being the, the player in this as well, but like uh, I'm sure they would, fans would see the reads he's making from year one to year four, from year two to three. Um, it's, it's special. I mean, it's why obviously – the guys upstairs draft him. It's why Quinn put the ball in his hands and he ended up starting after however many, 20 games or 50, whatever that was that, that first year. Um, and why we trusted him to take that role as a, as a kid when he, he first got here. Um, and you can do all that and hope that it works. Um, I think with, with the way it was handled, the way, again, seeing him on a daily basis, it was obvious that we could do that from, game 15 or whatever it was. So um, I don't want to say like I'm necessarily like proud of him because he's my team teammate, but sounds like a father son thing, but like um, it is, it's, it's really cool to, to watch and be around and um, try and help him in ways that I can for him. Um, but again, I mean, he, he watches film, he, he does the right things. He, like you said, with that, he does everything with his ankle to make sure he's good to go each game. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be around him. Um, and I'm sure from the outside looking in, if you're not around us on a daily basis, I, I would be surprised if there'd be many people out there that could say they haven't noticed what he's been able to do or the progress he's made. Um, yeah, it's, it's impressive. I don't know how many players make the – I mean, there's obviously players that make the jumps and, and leaps that he has, but but it's a very special number of guys that, that are able to do it. So, um yeah, it's, it's cool to be around. Um, maybe one day in like however many years when I retire, I'll, you can ask me the same question and I'll see if he's, um, I've got a different answer as a pure observer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to be around on a, on a daily basis. All right, there's Joe Ingles, and before that, Quinn Snyder as the Jazz get ready for Game 5 tonight with the Clippers. We're going to take a break, come back with what is trending, all the headlines. Stay with us.